are Venom. In honor of Venom, let there be carnage. What's a lead performance in a movie that's better than it has to be to serve the movie around it? I'm Katie Rich, and I'm going with Harrison Ford in 2015's The Age of Adeline. He and Blake Lively are both weirdly grid in it, but this was in like a big Harrison Ford sleepwalking period. And for some reason, being in this silly movie with Blake Lively really uh, brought him out of his stupor. He's great in it. I'm Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with Kristen Stewart and Jesse Eisenberg in the greatest pairing of all time, American Ultra. No one saw this movie. It does not exist. Everyone who did hated it, except for me. It's good. Written by Matt, Max Landis and also taken <laughs> by Amy Again. Nicholson. So you, have some, you have some high-quality company out there, but you know what? not much. Sometimes things can go right, even when so many parts are wrong. And one <laughs> Truly a piece of dog shit, unlike a few movies a, that came out A quality year. film. <laughs> hey, it's me, David the Seven, and inspired by our revisiting of The Addams Family, I'm going to pick Raul Julia in Street Fighter, because he is selling it, and he is the only one selling it. I'm David Ehrlich, and, and honestly, I'm just too upset by Patch's choice to submit an answer. I'm, I'm politely abstaining. I just need that to sit in the air for a little bit longer. But you look so saying, your answer so is me in this podcast. <laughs> me in this podcast. <laughs> no, American Ultra. You come into my headphones and say good things about American Ultra. Get out of here. Next week, it's going to be what performance ruined an otherwise good thing, and it's going to be Matt Patch That's picking me, American yeah. Ultra. Yeah. <laughs> Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's awesome. awesome. Hello, and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 367. It's pandemic 80. It is the week of Wednesday, September 29th. That's the day that in 1954, A Star is Born, starring Judy Garland, premiered. Uh, Dave, you listed as the first Star is Born remake, but technically the first version was What Price Hollywood, so that the Ooh. first Star is Born was itself a remake. But it's kinda, oh. it depends on how pedantic you want to get about it. Yep, well, thank you for correcting me. I have Star is Born on the brain because in the Licorice Pizza trailer, Bradley Cooper is playing John Peters, who is the producer of Star is Born because he was dating Barbara Streisand. Like Sam. I'm back. Aren't you guys all? Hey, I went to Hollywood. I went to I went to Los Angeles. I listened to the podcast on the flight back, which was delightful. And uh, as I told you guys, I really appreciate the moment where Dave said he missed me and had to cut off David himself. I promise to cut off David when the time comes. <laughs> the way that you are all accustomed to doing. I do not promise to remember release dates. Because we're not I talking about many out, I do want to point out. We that- really thought that movie was coming out this week. Newark. <laughs> Many things Katie, you know, Katie is not an innocent here, I have to say. Katie, Ooh. this morning, in, okay. in a historic moment of hypocrisy, I was listening to your delightful recent episode of Blank Check, where you were talking about Starman, and at the beginning of the episode, where they say, you know, Katie, where, where are you coming from? What, what do you do? You say, <laughs> Vanity Fair and Little Gold Men, and that's it. That's true. You haven't oh. listened to the whole episode yet, then have you? I've heard they enough. talk about this podcast at the end. You better not, say not leading minute. with fighting in the world. <laughs> you I, better right, give a five-minute monologue at the end about how this I'll, is your true pride and joy. You can't even remember your kids' names because this podcast <laughs> is all you think about. I will apologize because I do call you out specifically because I say I always give David Earl like hell when he doesn't mention fighting in the war room on this mm. podcast. But I did do it at the end, so I will do better mm. next time. Yeah. Everyone listen to uh, that show. But we're not here to talk about Blank Check. They have enough no. attention. 
They we're here to talk about the nice things. It comes up every <laughs> single episode. We are here to talk about the nice things that you guys said about us in some iTunes reviews. Yeah. Or Galaxy of Heroes. Uh, actually, by, by, I, I, by executive order, I've decided that we were going to talk about neither. We do have no new reviews this week, but uh, I feel like this is as appropriate a time as any to spare you guys. Uh, a Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes update, even though we are in the middle of another Galaxy Conquest. I chose the hard route. I'm somewhere in the fourth of the five no, worlds. It's no, no, you said going. you weren't going to talk but, about that. Uh, <laughs> on a recent episode, uh, on a, a serious note, on a recent episode of the show, as you guys may remember, anyone who stuck it out to the end, it's actually towards the beginning of my long, long ramblings from the Telluride Film Festival, I told uh, a uh, not-all-that-entertaining story about having dinner at Telluride with the director, Roger Michel. Uh, and how much of a moron I felt, uh, even more so than usual, when I got home to my hotel that night and realized that I had been sitting next to the man who was primarily responsible for one of the great works of art of my lifetime, Notting Hill. Uh, I remembered some of the other films that Roger Michel had made, and we spoke about them, uh, and he was a very gregarious and kind dinner companion uh, at this, this small table where I was sat with Richard Lawson and um, Nate Jones of Vulture and Helen Mirren, who was on the other side of Roger Michelle, and I said all of two words too. Um, and it was a lovely night, and uh, I was very shocked uh, to learn that this was about three weeks ago, and, and then last week Roger Michelle died suddenly. Um, and it just felt strange after that that rant, a rant of mine, which ended with uh, plotting to interview him for his new film, The Duke, uh, just so that I could. Finally, talk to him about the needle drop, the end of Notting Hill, where, of course, Hugh Grant says, saw the dog, I've made the wrong decision, haven't I? And Reciphons goes, yup. And then it goes, do, 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 do. You know, it's truly uh, why the cinema was born. Um, and I say that with no sarcasm whatsoever. Uh, and uh, was was hoping to speak to him about something, anything, again, one day, because he was a wonderful dinner conversation. And so I just wanted to... Pay respects to, to Roger Michel, to his family, to his body of work, which includes um, not just Notting Hill, a masterpiece, but also Changing Lanes, which is a very, very good movie and the kind that is uh, it would be impossible to write about without making some mention in the lead about how it's the kind of movie that Hollywood doesn't make anymore. Sort of true in Wait, 2002. Very true now. I agree with this sentiment. Why is this in the threatening the listeners with something boring part of the show? We could have made just, this a segment. Well, I don't know. We didn't. I'm, I'm making a call. This has been weighing on my mind for three weeks. <laughs> David Let just didn't tell us that he wanted to do this, so he's <laughs> going to just do it when he feels so right. surprised. You're going to hear about Dear Evan Hansen this week, and you didn't have to, but no. <laughs> you get you get both. No, it's both. I was in content. the middle. I was in the middle of a heartfelt tribute to this guy. This doesn't really feel like the right time for this guy's. No, um, this is, and this is was... good. It's it's always a time to make fun of you. Even I'm doing it in the name of Robert Michelle. Okay, he would want this. Uh, he made Enduring Love, which he was particularly proud of, um, and Venus and Morning Glory, which is not a movie that I care for, but I know has its fans in this podcast. Um, Speaking of Harrison Ford performances that don't have Pratata. to be as good as they are. There you go. And Le Weekend, Pratata. which is a cute little movie. And recently, Blackbird, I have not seen The Duke. Um, anyway, it was just, uh, he, he, he was very honest about his ups and downs in his career, his failings, very excited about the, the all-archival documentary about Queen Elizabeth, who he described at length as this sort of Jungian figure, um, and that is the lens through which he's looking at her that's coming out next year. Apparently, he had just about finished work on it, 
Um, no, I mean, I, I didn't have any special affinity for the man. I wasn't, this was the only one and only time that I'd ever spoken to him, but, uh, he was a lovely person to talk to. I felt like an idiot for forgetting the one thing I wanted to talk to him about. And, uh, yeah, it just, it really caught me off guard and, and was a, another of many needless cruel reminders that life is short. Um, and there are a lot of great filmmakers who have died recently, uh, but it was just very odd for me, especially just because I talked about it on this podcast at such length that yeah. I, uh, just earlier this month, uh, had a lovely night with this guy, and and uh, I don't know. It was uh, it had been weighing on me, and uh, yeah, my my respects to his family. And go uh, watch a Roger Michelle movie. There are a bunch of good ones. Did you know that in 1998 he had a movie called Titanic Town? So that comes out like six months after Titanic, and it seems to be just set in Belfast. And I wonder if they just retitled it on him to capitalize on Titanic in like a video store. Oh, maybe. Another question yeah. that we wish we could have asked Roger Michelle. Well, not <laughs> too late to retitle Belfast, Titanic Town 2, and really. And you know, Kieran oh, here's, Hines here's, is in both. I was like, oh, he was about to say, yeah, oh, he is. Oh, sorry. Kieran Hines. Can't, can't go 30 seconds in this segment that I've improvised on the spot without telling you guys without getting shat on. Anyway, leave <laughs> yeah. us a review on iTunes uh, at Fighting in the War Room so that we don't have to talk about Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes or a recently deceased filmmaker who we may have met. One is boring, the other morbid. Spare us. Let's hear your words instead. The newest Mike Flanagan Netflix series hit last Friday. It is a seven-episode series called Midnight Mass. Uh, As of this recording, Katie, I believe, has seen zero episodes. Have you seen a trailer or anything? Uh, No. I know that my colleague Anthony Bresnikan wrote a thing about it that I did not edit, so I did not read it, and uh, it involves... Catholicism. It does involve Catholicism. <laughs> Good. The Lord. It involves the Are there nuns, I, are there I nuns in or am I getting get confused with Benedetta, which is at New York? They're not no, nuns. you are not at okay. all getting it confused with Benedetta. I will say that not only does it involve Catholicism heavily, I could not watch a show without every 30 seconds thinking to myself, none of this would happen to a bunch of Jews. It's, it's just like, <laughs> if this show were Jewish, it would be it would be either a lot longer or a lot shorter, and it would be very, very different. I like the I, idea of you saying that with, like, The Exorcist, like, any movie involving priests. I mean, like, ah, Jews would have well, avoided two let, popes. Let Dave, let Dave regale us with the basic premise of this Wait, show. Wait, this is an interesting question. A little bit. Which, like, Catholic religious horror movie would be scarier with Jews? Hmm. Um, well, I, I feel like I guess as a movies Jew, my really people the... are uh, scared of everything all the time. Um, but also, also, I think would not would not buy into certain things that the characters in this show do. But I really don't want to say too much. But by episode six, that thought was just sort of pinging around my head so loudly that uh, <laughs> I just had to had to say it out loud somewhere. But Dave, tell us about the basic premise of the show. Yeah, so the basic premise of this show is it takes place uh, in a fictional island town that has a population of like 127 people. It's a fisherman's town. There's recently been an oil spill, so they are uh, not doing well economically. It looks uh, beautiful, town is, though. It, it does look beautiful, but the Everyone town gets is sort of from property. Yes, the town is sort of dying off. Uh, still, you know, beachfront properties, small houses, working class uh, people. 
Uh, one of Zach Guilford uh, plays a man named Riley Flynn, who right at the beginning of the show, we learn, has killed a teenager in a drunk driving accident and goes to prison for four years. He comes back, and that's when we sort of pick up uh, the main narrative of the series. At the same time that he comes back uh, to this island, his high school girlfriend, Erin uh, Green, played by Katie Siegel, Mike Flanagan's significant other, uh, is back. Um, she went to go find her fortune as a young woman, uh, then run away from the town, and has come back uh, alone and pregnant, but happy about it. So everybody's, you know, a little bit town gossipy, but otherwise kind of into her, because her... Uh, Riley's uh, entire family and most of the people on this island all attend a church called St. Patrick's. They're very heavily Catholic, uh, with a few exceptions. Um, but this uh, Catholic church, at the exact same time that uh, Riley and Aaron uh, get back to town, uh, have sent their very, very old Monsignor on a trip to the Holy Land. And Instead of him coming back, they get this much younger person played by Hamish Linkletter named Father Paul Hill, who shows up and the diocese has sent him because their old Monsignor, something happened to him and he is recuperating at a place that he cannot. Yeah, well, he he cannot come back to the island until he recovers. So Father Paul Hill's going to fill in. Yeah, he's like the new pope, you know, he fucks. He's cool. I mean, he's he's younger. He seems to have, um, you know, most of he, he more of the community like on his a, side. A biblical rage, I would say. <laughs> he does. Whoa. Uh, and then, as very soon after uh, Father Paul Hill shows up, I would say uh, God maybe starts to make himself known on the island uh, through a series of uh, different interactions uh, from a very plague-like. A thing that happens at the end of the first episode where hundreds of dead cats wash up on the beach to something a little bit more miracle-like, which happens, I believe, in the second episode, which is uh, the local girl who's paralyzed is able to, like, walk out of her chair um, while at mass. Uh, There is something... I I really like this series because of, I think, the stuff it gets into, especially at the end. Don't say say anymore. I'm not going to say the thing. I'm not going to say the thing. There's, There's... well, I will say there is a thing. There's like an episode three thing that uh, reveals a lot about the series, but I think everywhere I've seen it reviewed, uh, they've been avoiding the thing. Is um, it the kind of thing where if you're not into it, you should watch through to episode three to see if that... I feel like we should talk about the thing with five minutes ago here, it's because not, even it's I won't be having it dangled in front of me. Okay, well, well Dave, Dave well, will talk about it, but... I mean, if you want to do a spoiler gong, I could say I kinda, the thing real I fast. I kind of want... Well, not not right now, but... Yeah, yeah. My big question is this. I don't know if it's necessary to talk <laughs> about I want to know. I want well, to be spoiled. I mean, here's, here's I, mean, the I can thing look up the Wikipedia page if you need me to. Yeah, you could also do it. It's a show that is most... It's uh, the thing that I've discovered about Mike Flanagan horror that I really like is he's not afraid to kind of go long with his characters, even if I think sometimes the movie yeah. or his projects... And that's why I want something dangled in front of me, because, look, I, I love a lot of the, the Mike Flanagan stuff. I love all the house on... Of Bly Manor and and whatever the other one was that I can't remember because there's too much content. Um, yeah, I Bly am Manor a big Doctor Sleep fan. I like his mm. other movie, his Gerald's Game and his Stephen King stuff. Um, but what? I do think with these series, hold on, I um that like there's a bit of an overinvestment or maybe overconfidence in like the dialogue and the 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 human drama of it all. Like, oh, we're gonna be slightly alternative or elevated as people 
sometimes say these days, um, where like in the first episode, it's just a lot of human drama. And Mike Flanagan also does this thing where I am preparing for some sort of flashback episode because half the cast is in old person makeup. Like this is a recurring theme for him. He loves dressing mm. up cast members in old makeup so that well, later I certainly he can do don't know young, what you're talking about. I certainly know what you're talking about in uh, in context of this show. Um, but uh, uh, I don't know uh, if that's true. <laughs> um, I said I don't know what he's talking about. Uh, but I did want to roll the tape back to you talking about Stephen King because this feels like you know, aside from Doctor Sleep, which is a truly awful movie as far as I'm concerned. Um, but also, that reflects my deep disinterest in, in all things Stephen King. I mean, there have been the odd Stephen King adaptation that I've enjoyed, The Mists in particular, which I also reference for no particular reason. Um, but they, I, there's Stephen King. We've talked about him on this podcast. His writing. His psychic children, all the nonsense they go into, it just drives me up the wall. Um, this, aside from Doctor Sleep, feels like the Stephen and you know, the other King adaptation he made feels like it feels like the kingiest non-king. Yeah, material and the setting, the setting helps. Like non-king. feeling like and, we're in Maine by the sea helps, but feel the community of it all. Yeah. I mean, the one thing I wanted to know too is it has you know this biblical overtone this obviously like good possibly good versus evil or just like we're going to run as big as possible when we're talking about god it reminds me of a lot of king stories or certainly reminds me of of even like dark tower just how big that stuff gets uh but uh, you know dave i was curious just from i've seen the first episode only i'm a big carnival fan like are we talking are we gonna feel that scope in the Wait, in the I, show, I was, uh, I was not done uh, talking about Stephen King. I know, <laughs> but you cut. Me, but see, you cut started. me off. You cut me off. So I was interjecting oh, no. back in to my. All right, let me try to answer All Patch's right, question in a way what? that kicks to David here. Fighting in the war room, everybody. Uh, which is uh, Patch's? I think this um, series is very thematically linked to the idea of how much you could get across in monologues, whether it be sermons or AA meeting monologues, but what happens when you let somebody who maybe doesn't want to talk, what happens when you make them talk? I think that's in the uh, the DNA of this series. And I, I think it's a really generous way of, of putting I mean, I, I, I like the show a lot. I'm about 18 minutes at the time we record this away from the end of the show um, that I paused for this episode. Uh, episode six was a real humdinger of an hour of TV. Um, and, uh, but I, I think Dave's spin on all of the, the speechifying and monologuing that happened in this show, uh, which features long stretches of people talking out at one another is a generous spin on that. I think some of it probably has to do with the COVID protocols under which the show was shot last fall, um, where it just required, you know, fewer scenes and, and more talking. And maybe it was always that way on the page. I'm not sure, but it feels that way a little bit to me. Uh, but aside, I mean, it is the, 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 the premise, the, the big bad at work, the sort of uh, easily swayable populace, the religious fervor, um, the way that all these things come together is very, very Stephen King. Um, and yet, despite my antipathy towards Stephen King, I've really what does really that mean the for show you? so far? Um, what, what, when you well, talk I just, about I find the, that, being Stephen Kingy, I mean, typically the Stephen King stuff that drives me up the wall is is just getting into the nitty gritty, silly details of the horror fantasy stuff. I mean, like. You know, as, as I mentioned earlier, the psychic children, the um, the cats who smell death, and the I duddits and all that shit. It makes me crazy. And there's a reason why The Mist and Rita Hayworth and The Shawshank Redemption and things that are a lot, I would say a little, but a lot more grounded 
um, that Stephen King writes tend to resonate with me more. And they also benefit, I think, from strong adaptations because the stories lead themselves or lend themselves to adaptations in a way that something like Dreamcatcher doesn't. Um, and, uh, you know, I the, the, there's an emotional presentness to this miniseries that works. And also just the cleverness of its conceit, which I do not want to get into, but the way that the way that it hinges on a lot of the same themes um, and religiosity that the mist explores, but in a different context and a different setting and with different dynamics, most of all um, in the townspeople, even if you have like a clear Marsha Gay Harden equivalent and a clear, um, you know, I was about to say, do you think that Mike Flanagan has read and adapted so much Stephen King that he's now a successor that he's now producing like algorithmic Uh, (laughs) Stephen King? Miniseries. I feel like he was good at Stephen King because this is his this is movie, his ins- you know? impulse. This is, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Like this he, is, yeah. Oh, so like this is something that he's been wanting to make for a long time. There are references to a Midnight Mass in two of his previous. I was about to say, I films. think Gerald's Game has like um, a Midnight Mass book on a shelf or something. Yeah, and this came along really quickly after the House of Bl- the Haunting of Bly Manor, and it's because it's something that he's had in the pocket for a long time. Um, and it feel like there's just like a. You know, even for all the monologuing, a lot of which I found very easy to tune out, and I was joking yeah. earlier about how a lot of the show is unfathomable with like a uh, if it took place on like a shtetl or something, um, or like a kibbutz. Uh, you know, I think um, in a shtetl on a kibbutz, I think remake the, Yentl, Mike Flanagan. Yeah, I mean all of the all of the talking about about the Bible and then the and, you know and this interpretation of Jesus' lessons and whatnot, I, I tend to eventually sort of. Um, my brain goes numb because I just wasn't built to retain that kind of information. Um, I don't have that background, but there is an underlying humanity that shines through in this, in the same way that it did in the haunting of Bly Manor. And there are moments, um, particularly some with Kate Sigu, Kate Sigu gives a, a lovely performance, but there are some moments revolving her character towards the end of the show that do feel very forced and, and sentimental in their way. Um, but there's also like Rahul Kohli who plays Sheriff Hassan and was a character in, I mean, he played a character in um, The Haunting of Bly Manor as well, a very different character, has just such a grounding energy Man, to it. He's, he's a such a actor. perfect skeptic. He's a great actor. He's such a perfect skeptic for this show, playing the sheriff, who is a Muslim and is obviously a sort of um, an outsider to this town for, for several reasons as a result of that. And he has this sort of conversation about faith with his son, who's beginning to flirt with Christianity um, and going to the church because he's flirting with a girl and so on. Um, but he, I think, really serves as a conduit for keeping all of this, no matter how heightened it gets, on human terms. But I also love the way that this show brings in the supernatural, because I think it's done very smartly. I feel like we... I, I, Dave, I want you to ring the spoiler gone, because I just I want a little taste of the supernatural here. I want to know where it's going to blow up. So can you tell us... All right, here we go. We're going to spoiler gong right now. <laughs> And I'm going to do the thing where I'm going to explain this. Uh, Joanna Robinson pitched this series to me. She saw it before it aired and she's like, you're really going to like it. And the thing she should have said to me because I guessed it by being hyper aware there was a twist and I should have just laid back and waited for the twist. Because it happens at the end of episode three. Vampires. Okay. They love God. Yeah, so the the real, the genius conceit of this, as far as I'm concerned, is that you know, this priest, the old man, he's in, he's in Damascus, and he gets he has dementia, and he wanders into a cave, and he, you know, encounters this ancient vampire who bites him. But he 
sincerely believes that this is an angel of God. And he brings the vampire back to his community. And the vampire wears Bishop's robes and goes to church. Um, and uh, he, I mean, they truly treat this, this you know, nefarious creature as an emissary of the Lord. And that is, and they, they, they feed the, the people in their church um, unknowingly the blood of this vampire to sort of prepare them for this eventual awakening as part of the Eucharist, as part of uh, the, the Sunday mm. services. Um, and so the whole town is sort of being um, infected in a way without them knowing. And it's easy to tap into a lot of the same sort of fears about, and themes rather about groupthink and about religious fervor and, and, yeah. uh, intimidation and they do it all, all without stuff, saying but... the V word too. So it's just mm, like, yeah. they, it's really smart how they show that like those people that can quote Bible verses to you can justify anything with those Bible verses is uh, dope. Mm. I definitely needed to learn that. Yeah. Midnight, (laughs) midnight mass, get there. It, it happens. So the twist happens. And then the next episode back is the most monologuing must most up its own butt. And then it really like kicks off. Uh, but yeah, Midnight Mask, the Mike guys, Flanagan way. The Mike Flanagan way. Finally, a good thing on Netflix, though. Come on, we're happy about that. <laughs> yeah, it's been a while. It was nice not to watch <laughs> really HBO hey, Max. Sex Education it. season three. Don't mess it. deputized to talk about Dear Evan Hansen because I'm the only one of us who saw it, which surprises me somehow. Patches, I would have thought that Dear Evan Hansen would have uh, made its way to you. Uh, well, it's not these days. You I have to really. By your I, Evan no, Hansen? exactly. I really have to like go to the theater and trek to the theater these days. So it's yeah. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not. The reviews were bad, and I, I got to be I honest. Know. Again, like my Hamilton uh, thing here, I've never heard the music. From Dear Evan Hansen. I never had either. All. I was completely, I went into this Didn't like, see the show. knowing that people make yeah. waving through a window and uh, you will be found. Jokes and certainly, and what are the uh, songwriters' names? God, they're so big after uh, Dear Evan Hansen. Benj, Pasek, and something. Right. Paul. Greatest Showman. What Justin else? Paul? They've done a lot. La La Land. La La Land. Oh my God. Um, those bad. are their two big ones for sure. Um, the music in the Urban Hansen is really good. I mean, most, mostly I'm here to say that the movie is not the like ever loving catastrophe. That it's not the Antichrist. To make it it's not to Midnight no. Mass Two. It's not Cats. <laughs> you know, like it is a the musical itself is deeply flawed. And if you've like heard people complaining about it, you've heard them talking about how the concept is not what I think so many of us assume. That's like, oh, it's a gay kid who gets bullied and has broken arm, and it's about like being bullied in school. Not what it's about. It's about him, you know, more or less pretending to be friends with a kid who died by suicide because he's like too afraid to tell the kid's parents. And it relies on this character, Evan Hansen, being like so socially awkward and neurotic and nervous that he can't like speak in front of people more or less. And Ben Platt wanted Tony for playing him. The theatricality of his performance is still very much there on the screen. Like it's just too big a role when he's surrounded by like Amy Adams and Julianne Moore and Caitlin Deaver, who like really know what to do as screen actors. But he's got a great voice. He sings a bunch of great songs. They're all very weird because it's people standing in rooms singing at each other. Like there's no, <laughs> there's very little dancing. There's not like a lot of like musical numbers to it. It's just songs. Soliloquizing um, as songs. But it's like <laughs> fine. Like the, the songs will get you after a while. All the actors like around Ben Platt are pretty good. It looks fine. Like 
I assume that there will be plenty of teenagers who like this, similar to um, Perks Being a Wallflower, the movie that Stephen Chosky made, not immediately previous to this. But no, because he did um, that. Uh, did he do Wonder? Wonder, yes. That movie's pretty good, too. With my son, Jacob Tremblay. With your son, son Jacob <laughs> Tremblay. He's doing so well these days. He was in Luca. He was um, uh, eaten alive in Dr. Sleep. He was, Oh, my yeah. God, that's true. Yes, thank <laughs> you, Mike Flanagan. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't... <laughs> I don't know that any of you need to see Dear Evan Hansen. Like, it probably will just no longer exist in the Broadway Well, that's the thing. You were comparing it to Cats, but, like, Cats is is so bad, it, it's watchable, right? Like, everybody... Dear Evan Hansen is not fun. You're no. not going to go into, like, hoot and holler and laugh at it. Like, Cats is so crazy. And it's made to be, like, big and entertaining. Like, Dear Evan Hansen is made to be, like, emotional and, like, make you think about, like, how to listen to the people around you and connect. Mm. And, like, it's just super, super earnest. Do you think if um, the uh, Dear Evan Hansen butthole cut ever comes out that they'll, uh, <laughs> it could change the critic opinion? Thank you. Good night. I've been found. I've been found. Buttholes would ben... be added over the clothing in this case? Just like extra buttholes? Yeah, that's right. Even though Ben Platt is not a teen, I feel uncomfortable with you talking about okay, yeah, even that's a fair. theoretical teen in, in these terms. Uh, yeah, it's fine. The songs will get stuck in your head. Even though now that like I'm singing, like you will be found. I'm singing, she will be loved in my head. Like you will be found. <laughs> so maybe that's uh, maybe the songs aren't as catchy as I'm giving. Do you think Amy for. Adams will ever make another good movie? I worry, man. She it's needs a rough new representation. Year. Something needs to happen. Like I don't know. Like if you're as famous as Amy Adams is, is about representation so much as like you know she's in her 40s. Like is it just in like the period where her offers are going to get bad. I don't know. She needs help. She it's could like, go back and do another what, like Enchanted musical. She's supposed she's to be. Just, isn't she's, she doing one? Yeah, that's there on, we the, go. That's yeah, on yeah, the book. Yeah. I mean, no disrespect to Amy Adams, who is a wonderful actress Amazing. and by all accounts a lovely person as well. But I do feel like it's important that we read over her last few credits. There was Dear Evan Hansen. <laughs> Please. Before that, there was The Woman in the Window. Before yeah, that, huh? Zack Snyder's Justice League. Before that, oh, Kill okay. Billy Elegy. Before uh-huh. that, possibly the worst movie of them all, Vice. Before that, Ooh. Justice League. Before that, Nocturnal Animals. And then before that, you have the reprieve of Arrival, which is why they held this one for better movies and great performances. Before that, Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. She got <laughs> sucked into a I black mean, hole. Eyes. Who, who this is, that should all count as one credit. For, Big eyes. Yeah, before yeah. that, hold on, it's only getting worse. Before that, American worse? Hustle. No. Hey, uh, I'm sorry, the New York Film Critics Circle gave that the best picture of the year. David, David, was you're watch, part David. of that organization. I, no, I, I had to become a part of that, that organization <laughs> just to prevent that from happening again. It is remarkable that Amy, I don't know, if, I guess Hillbilly Elegy technically is a 2020 movie, but like basically four movies out this year, kind of each one worse than the last. I don't know. Jeffrey Hansen is not worse than Woman in the Window. So like I want to say Soderbergh that. to take her on a cruise or something. Yeah, I think it is within her power to make a good movie. Obviously, the roles change as you get older, as you're an actress in Hollywood. But if she wanted to work with a different caliber of filmmakers, I'm sure she could make that happen. I'm going to keep watching The Mast until she makes a good movie. Ooh, (laughs) that sounds exhausting, but uh, maybe rewarding. Yeah, you can't watch The Master after Midnight Mass too much. The Midnight Master? Hey! Uh, Her next film is a... Sequel, although it is going directly to Disney Plus, which is, I think does not say anything about the quality of the film so much as the quality of our times, bad, uh, is a sequel to Disenchanted. Yeah. 
Oh, right. Nice. Or sequel to Enchanted. Sequel to Enchanted. Called Disenchanted. Disenchanted. Good. I'm fine. Um, Get that bag, Amy Adams. I don't mm-hmm. care. So, no, but I Enchanted was a fun movie, so I have high hopes for the sequel. Why not? Uh, see Darvin Hansen. Don't see Darvin Hansen. That's fine. <laughs> Either way. Yeah, you're fine. Shout! Shout! So, uh, for segment three tonight, we're going to be talking about uh, a television show called Foundation, which I heard about about two hours ago and uh, (laughs) have seen 30 minutes of the pilot. Um, You have not seen the the whole pilot. No, but the... uh, the, the, That's why he said he had 30 seconds worth of things to say. You're right. I I do know that it is adapted from a book by Isaac Asimov, uh, a name I'm sure familiar to most people listening to this podcast, um, and also fans of the first episode of Cowboy Bebop. (laughs) <laughs> just where I probably heard, first heard the, the word Asimov, although I don't know if the character's relation to Isaac is uh, meaningful. I doubt it is. Anyway, um, and the show is being showrun by David S. Goyer, which is a red flag if ever I have uh, Not just one. David S. Goyer, also Josh Friedman. Uh, I'm not familiar with Josh Friedman's work. He has done, he also worked with David Terminator, S. Terminator, Sarah Connor Chronicles. Yeah. Right, right, right. Anyway, the the pedigree is belied by the budget, which is seemingly enormous. This is an Apple TV show. Uh, the money is just leaking off the screen so much that you could just sit there with your mouth open at the bottom of the, or your wallet open, wherever you take your money, the, the foot of your TV, uh, and you'll be very rich. Uh, I am going to defer to Patches about the premise of the show. I just have to say that in the 30 minutes of it that I saw, it is perhaps... <laughs> The most nerd-ass shit in the history of nerd-ass shit that we have covered on this podcast. My lord. The non-stop avalanche of zizaks and we're on sleek lorp and we're like fucking <laughs> moving murals and planets and jared harris shows up as harry selden but his name is, is spelled h-a-r-i um yeah. and he's um yeah i mean but every i mean that is uh, far what away what, the, what moment like broke you it seems i'm just like what what was over it, the line of world i mean the building? first the first like 15 seconds is narration talking about uh talking about whatever i wanted to learn all the planets names here are Selvor, five planets Selvor, <laughs> Martin, talking about terminus 35 and then we're in the future and there's like a floating alien obelisk of some kind which looks really cool but it makes people see ghosts and kids heads are exploding and then suddenly we're in the past on like nine different planets and Lee Pace is tall and he's some guy painting a mural that moves and then that guy explodes for he some explodes reason because Lee guy. Pace is mean. And then I was like, oh, rude. And then there's math. There's a lot of math talk. There's but so like, much oh, math. math. There's so it's much like math. It's math. great. <laughs> I love math. Do you? <laughs> yeah, I love it. You got into this career from loving math? I know, I know. This is, this is, just, the, this talk, is just the Harry tell, Potter of math. Tell people, <laughs> tell people what... This is, and also tell us if the world building becomes, if you acclimate, acclimate, acclimate to it sure. over the course of a couple of episodes. Does it become an actual show? I watched I mean, the I... whole pilot and I got to the point where I was like, I understand the concept now and whether or not it would actually be a functional TV show is still unclear to me. So uh, one of the things that I love about this show and why I'm, I'm pretty all in on it and I've watched like eight of ten so far, thanks to screener abilities and, and great privilege. Um, it, and I won't spoil 
too far. I, I think trying to would be a fool's errand, as, as David has explained. It's pretty dense. <laughs> I mean, it really, I, I have I have questions at the yeah, end. Sure, but we'll, we'll get there. But um, yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing that I was like, my head was spinning after watching two or three episodes. I went back to everybody I work with, and I'm like, finally, there is a show like Six Feet Under and Parenthood, and it is foundation for dweebs. <laughs> Oh. Um, what is it what is that even what is that it mean? is yeah, finally there's about? like a family show about family issues and like just like personal human stuff um and then every so often and then the show is about and then every, wait, about the family and, of, of empire of emperor clothes well hold on and then every, every so often there's a giant spaceship that blows whole planets up but at the core it's like people navigating people shit a lot of this is spent on as you said, uh, Terminus, which is a planet in the middle of nowhere where Henry Selden's followers are trying to save humanity by building a giant library. Um, Mm -hmm. And a lot of their time is spent like, what are we doing with our lives? Who am I? What is my purpose on this barren planet? How am I navigating? It's like, it's about, at at the core of this show, is a huge Roman Empire style saga that's happening, mm-hmm. political saga that's happening in space, truly in space, above you. And really the actions wisely is about the people who are being affected by these giant moves. Like how can you remain a person? What is your life like if you are an individual in this kind of cosmic soap opera and this cosmic political you know, it's mind-boggling to try and understand your place in this world. And that's what I really like, that this show has found a footing with, in the first episode, we get to meet Gale, who is coming this from this kind of, like, repressed society that doesn't believe in academics, but she is a math person. Um, first off, geeks. That's, that's the Harry Potter. Let's throw in. This is great. You're smart. Come to the planet with us. Yeah. It is you a bit. You can solve. She, like, wins a contest. She basically. does win a contest. Like, you win, you win this wins group a math spelling bee, and you get to go to a new planet. First off, every person, every geeky person deserves this hero. And um, thank God she's being depicted. STEM is thriving stand. in the year, like, 47, <laughs> whenever this show uh, takes place. Very glad that some the hero of a new big space show can win a math contest and get to go uh, <laughs> somewhere. It's not magic. She's not the chosen one. She's just really fucking smart. And she gets to leave her planet and go meet uh, Henry Selden and or Harry Selden, and sh- and she realizes that she's going to be something, uh, a- an important part of making the case for why all of humanity is going to be destroyed, um, and that psychohistory, the math that Isaac Asimov has invented uh, for these books, uh, which allows people to calculate the fate of humanity, it is soothsaying through analytical computation. Um, Harry Seldon has told the Empire, "You everything will be destroyed." And uh, what I love is like this show is not too on the nose about the fact that well we're facing the same existential problem: climate change. We're all going to die. It's not about whether it will happen. It will happen. Can we reduce the impact, or can we do things to <laughs> change the our lives? The show just makes you more at peace with the idea, <laughs> right? The, the fatalistic yeah. aspect. But um, you know, the parallels are so obvious, and yet. I again, I think Goyer and Freeman have really centered on the human characters. I feel like Gail is is a very interesting person who's coming out of her shell and learning about all these things. And then by episode two, uh, people have to tell me what happened to episode two because I'm like all foggy now. Again, so yeah, it is dense. If you guys go watch the Foundation right now on Apple TV Plus, assuming you're watching this before Friday, there are two episodes available. 
Those are the two episodes I've seen. Yeah. And a lot of what Patch is talking to me is kind of mystifying me because they are not on Terminus. And we just no. had the first introduction of the idea of family at the end of season two before like our no, apparently I mean, character is injected out into space. Wait, they don't no, even it, get to Terminus by the end of the second no, the episode. episode ends with like, we're going to Terminus. Well, nope. hold on. So the other thing about Foundation and why this is Takes really surprising. Four years to get to Terminus. It's really surprising that this adaptation is extremely faithful to the Asimov books, which I've started rereading because I'm like so energized by the show. I've gone back to this text that I picked up when I was in college. I have the scrappy paper book uh, version of the Asimov book. And when I read it in college, I was just completely mystified. I had no idea what was going on. It's really, again, it, there's not a lot of action in the book. Everything massive that happens to the Empire, all these attacks and sort, sort of thing, it's all off screen. It's really like people talking about math or people talking about politics and law or people talking about building a library or people talking about preserving their resources so that they can come like survive a hundred more years really just like pretty dry stuff and the the amazing thing is in the intro to this copy that I have of foundation Asimov talks about how cuz this started as short stories they were not it was not a novel to begin with so he was writing short stories trying to kind of echo the roman empire history um and and doing it in spurts so they would jump ahead like 50 years or 50 more years or 100 years or something and he would collect them in a book or in a novel eventually and uh, he took like decades away from the Foundation series and was pushed by his publisher to come back to finish the story or to write more because people just wanted to learn more about what happened in the far future of the Foundation that people had. I'm really disappointed about. that you weren't going to say that he, in the introduction of your copy of Foundation, that Isaac Asimov had signed it to Matt to the future. <laughs> hey, <laughs> thank you. Uh, no, what, what he says is I didn't understand. Like I'm reading my own writing and it's dry and weird and I don't get it. Like he even admits that these early stuff that these guys are now adapting is actionless. And now, I find at what fascinating. point in the eight episodes that you've seen, do they get back to that floating alien obelisk that you see in the very beginning of the pilot? Well, that clip that we see in the beginning is actually the future. It's, it's right. a jump right. ahead yes. of time. And so I, we're bouncing they, around they the timeline. They 35 years yeah. ago on screen. I caught that So the, the, the show takes those leaps that Asbob does, which is by the second episode, we're done with one timeline, and we're now going to jump a- ahead those thirty-five years and and meet people in the future. And so that's just a, that was just a marker in time. That's not like a we're not revisiting those characters at length. Yeah. Well, I, 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 it, it gets a little tricky because of of the space time continuum. I will say, but right, what of course. makes now, it even <laughs> more mind bending is that Lee Pace, who is giving an amazing, flamboyant, just wonderful performance, uh, is is playing multiple characters in the show because in the empire they are keeping uh cleon the first he is being reiterated over and over he's being cloned so the three people that sit on the throne of the empire in this in this show are lee pace in the middle a cloned young version of lee pace and then his older self who eventually die and young or middle-aged lee pace will grow into him it's terrence stamp by the way uh who or not terrence stamp uh terrence no, Terrence man from lay miss we should all again this is the greatest show of all time, if it's not clear. Um, but yeah, there's just lots of clone stuff, and you we're constantly going back and <laughs> forth through time to see like younger Lee Pace, older Lee Pace. Uh, now it's Terrence Mann being the Lee Pace that we saw in the previous episode, but it was Lee Pace, and it's just like <laughs> they're murderous streaks, and they're all their their political decisions. They're on their I mean, kind I'm of sure own wavelength. And again, it is family drama. It's still like 
I'm getting yeah, the I mean, tie sure of Game of Thrones not... early seasons. For exactly. I was about to say, I'm sure at the end of the day, it is not all that or any more complicated than Game of Thrones. Which not at even all. Even my tiny head was able to understand by the, you know, at least for a moment by the end of the show's run. Um, this show, at least based on the pilot, seems even less accommodating to casual viewers, um, for better or worse. But I am caught by uh, something that David Goyer said that I'm reading on the Wikipedia page here, where he's talking about how they wanted the show to, or still want the show to run for, I mean, maybe he's just using this number as an example, as you know, as a point of contrast against making a two or three hour movie, but he keeps saying it's going to be 80 episodes, 80 hours, which um, given the cost of making this first 10 episode season would mean that the show ends up costing more than a billion dollars to make, which feels <laughs> egregious. Well, maybe they build a lot of the sets. Um, you build the sets once, and that costs a lot of money, and then you reuse them, and it costs a little less. Uh, um, I have I no mean, idea. So what you're talking about is the opposite of that. You're like, and then we're at a different time, and it's Lee Pace in a new costume. Like, uh, well, by episode here's, here's, three, we're on Terminus a bunch, and we're going here, back to the Empire. There's only a few locations. Here's the grace I'll give it. Game of Thrones first season, you really don't know what you're watching, I think, until episode nine. Like, maybe you hmm. get the idea that Eddard Stark's out to solve a mystery, and, you know, you're, like, hooking on that. But, like, you really don't get what you watched until the first three episodes until you're at the back end and you realize what you sort of watched. I get the most of that off of Foundation. Because it because it's jumping around in time, uh, like you're talking about, at least for the first two episodes, uh, they skip over the part where I'm on Gale's side. And sort of like, I get that everybody's playing games, they're going to become exiles, and then we jump forward to episode two, and she's in a relationship on the ship, and she's like heading a council, and I feel in that, that we jumped over a whole bunch of character development that could have anchored me to her harder. What you're saying is that we're going to quickly move on and into the future and maybe loop back on her. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that because just because we've jumped ahead in time does not mean we're done with characters who have been sent. <laughs> well, right. All I'm saying is that even though these first two episodes haven't hooked me on a character basis, there's certainly very efficient world building. Like you're saying, I think the metaphors uh, and comparisons you could make are very interesting. The idea of like a, you know, imperial dynasty that's run by three ages of the same person is very interesting in the first two episodes. They really quickly tap into something like that. Or it's just because Lee Pace is that good. But I'm having a trouble with the other humans because the story is basically using very yeah. advanced ma- math as its magical device. So here's what becomes more and more interesting as the show goes on. So um, eventually we get to Terminus where they've set up the library, the foundation that hopefully will establish like a, a, a giant trove of information for when the entire world dies off. Well, we won't have to start from the beginning. That's the whole premise of Foundation. And there, and we see her in the first uh, episode, Salvor Hardin, played by this woman, Lee Harvey, who is just, uh, actually, they... Oswald? Are, uh, yeah, Lee Harvey Oswald. Um, no. <laughs> uh, Lee Harvey is, is fantastic. Uh, they're just like this, this totally energized... Uh, one thing I like about the show, too, and this is weird, I guess, but all of these like classic giant sci-fi movies and shows or fantasy shows. There's always like British people playing these roles. Somewhat refreshing for like American people to be in space doing space things. I'm, I'm just, I have like, some very like, bad news about Jared Harris for you. 
He doesn't yeah. last, Although, but it's long. I also want uh, Alfred Enoch, who, uh, oh God, he's like the, the tall, handsome guy who takes her to the jail cell in the first episode. Sure. He's like the mm-hmm. assistant of Jared Harris. He is British, but he has an American accent for no right. yes. reason. No, and his do American the work. Accent is, his American accent is weird. Like, he's a perfectly fine actor, but he just has this, like, I will strangled- say, when you're 12,000 years in the future, I'm sure accents have kind of blurred together. So it's actually <laughs> very realistic. It doesn't matter how many no, years no, you are No, because they the call future. out... They call out her accent in like the first couple of scenes. It's like, oh, a Cenex accent. You don't hear yeah, that very I like much that. in the core. Well, that's what I mean. Like, she has an accent from a planet, not from a country. Anyway, it does not matter fine. how many years in the future you are. It will not be enough to stop my wife from walking by the TV, going TV and going, oh, that guy, how to get away with murder, Harry Potter. Um. <laughs> 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 uh, but yeah, when we when we get to Terminus and Salver Harden is the, the the warden of Terminus trying to be a protector here, and her family is really involved with Harry Seldon's whole mission to like preserve this information. The the questions of like what they're all doing with their lives become really human and really intimate. Um, and like when we ask ourselves, hey, what are we doing about climate change? Like when when we all wonder what we're supposed to be doing. I think that's what this show is really tapping into on a human level. And I will say, Gail re-enters the story. Uh, so she, we're not done with Gail when Gail jets off. I'll spoil that a little bit, but um, I, won't I mean, good. Otherwise, I would have been like, yeah. okay. But like the 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 ghost, the ghost of of Harry Seldon looms, not literally, but like Harry Seldon is a prophet of sorts. Where Harry Seldon has the math to prove he's that this projected all himself forward using math. So the question is like, how do you execute this plan and all the politics? All of you know that that's why the emperor and the the three emperors are so fascinating because as they are cloned each one is entering the world in a different at a different time and under a different set of demands and like they ask questions later in the series we see one of the emperors trying to kill themselves because it's just like i don't want to be part of this reign anymore i don't want to be part of this lineage and they literally can't because they're protected in force fields because this show is awesome um they cannot (laughs) throw themselves off bridges uh they have introduced that in the second by the second (laughs) okay but I, I just I find the complexities of the of the the human questions to really back up like, hey, here's a moment where spaceships are just gonna attack the side of a planet and blow it all up, or here's just like whack time jump or the, the the jump how the masks that they put on to go through the spaceships and go through the warp jumps or whatever, like that's rad. Yeah, all that stuff way, is but... very cool. I mean it looks <laughs> And the it money, looks amazing. The money is all on screen. I mean, I the, there's, there's like multiple battle much... angel uh, elites <laughs> hooking there people really up. Are. The I mean, that is this. that is such a uh, in your face reference point for the look of those like the space <laughs> women who are in the thing. But the um, yeah, I mean, all of that stuff, the design. There's a little bit too much gobbledygook explaining it in the first 15 minutes of an epic television show. But it looks so cool when they're doing the black hole, you know, space time continuum jumps, and the mesh netting is covering their faces. Um, I mean, all of it is the kind of tactile, smart design work that, and obviously reflects the budget involved, that makes you want to sit through and sift through all of the the terminology and find a way into the show. Um, and you know, for all of my my joking about how nerd shit it is, and it is you know that it is very much nerd shit. Uh, I yeah, I could see this becoming something interesting. But I wonder um, if it'll be. I wonder if it'll catch on. I mean. Again, like by the third Can... episode, we get a just it's like a human drama. Like Clark Peters is on Terminus. I'm just glad Clark, Clark Peters gets to run around in a spacesuit and try and protect his family. Like, what role 
what space odyssey does Clark Peters get to be part of? I'm just can it, can this and Dune both be hits at the same time and the world in 2021? Yeah, well, they I don't, do both. I don't know. They do both rely on apparently. I haven't gotten to that part of Foundation. A lot of personal shield technology, uh, which is <laughs> one of the the many things that I could not abide in Dune. So maybe if they both fail. I think you can point to that as the sole reason why. Mm, and if yeah. they both succeed, you know, maybe we're in for a long, dark winter of battle-looking <laughs> technology. Well, I mean, let's pull Katie Rich, average, non-size I was about to say, I gotta hear mm-hmm. that. Having seen some of Foundation and having seen trailers for Dune, do these seem like the same or similar stories to you? Ooh, that's a good question. It feels like Foundation is much more of like a societal, like... Like big, it feels like it's a bigger story. Like, and this is me knowing like very little about Dune because Dune feels much more like here's this one family and here's this other family and they need a thing and here's this guy who's like going to be at the center of it. Like I don't feel like there is even like the girl who's the main character in Foundation doesn't strike me as like the guy as much as Timothy Chalamet and Dune. Mm-hmm. You yeah, asked for I, my uninformed opinion. No, no, no. I is, think that's that's a good reason why people... Foundation isn't doing as well because I think they're very similar at their beginnings. Like we're dealing with royal houses and land grabs mm. and everything, and yeah, uh, you know, resources that are spread across space. Uh, but as Patches is describing, this one seems like it's going to turn to very personal, whereas Dune kind of turns in the other direction. Well, the question is, um, you know, has anyone heard of Foundation? I mean, for the amount of money they spent on this show, uh, I have seen zero advertising for it. And uh, the only reason I was made aware of the show is because I saw television critics on my Twitter timeline grousing about the fact that yeah. the embargo for the show was not until the day <laughs> was of part its of that. release. <laughs> which, uh, no, but I mean, it was... It was, I, it was yeah, baffling. I, just, um, I don't know it if it's baffling. a change. Yeah. I don't know if it's a change in just how... Apple might be ahead of the curve here. So I've been talking to a lot of people in L.A. about how, like, L.A. people, people in the business, know when things are happening based on billboards. I don't, We don't really talk about this a lot, but I just heard so much of it in response to lack of awareness on Foundation. Like, there are no billboards in Hollywood. There are no billboards in Hollywood to tell me that Foundation is coming out this week. And I thought that was very strange, but it really is... The big thing, like Apple's yeah, not I just, spending money. I just got back money. from there. They're obsessed with billboards. I don't know why. Love I mean, it. I know, I know why. It's because the executives who make these shows drive driving. The street, they're like, hey, they just want to put them in, in on the drive. Right Dick's to the it's, a, it's a pure vanity yes. thing, and it is very funny. But I, mean, I we wonder. Should get a bill, we should get a billboard for our podcast. And yeah, on the drive. Kickstarter can't for cost that. that much. Yeah, we got. That's yeah. we can finally Gosh. raise money. Um, that's, that's how Dave Wood broke. It yeah. wasn't for having children, but they tried the billboard. We need to go. Listen, as long as we all um, go broke, it's fine. I mean, that's the, the weird thing is, is Apple ahead of the curve here? Does, does it matter that people are talk, weren't talking about it in the lead up or this week? Like, I have a that guess is not why on... Ted Lasso is big. That's not why Apple shows are big. That's not why Apple yeah, TV yeah, yeah, Plus yeah. is actually growing bigger than HBO Max right now. Like, it's actually becoming a big streaming service. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's actually in step with an audience where it's like, we need to get the whole season out. Or like, why would we spend a dime before it, people can literally watch it right now? I would guess from what I've uh, learned from reactions to Ted Lasso, having not watched Ted Lasso, and from uh, the streaming dominance at recent Emmys, um, and like the difference between like the Netflix model, we talked about it a little bit last week. Uh, I would guess that Apple TV marketing has an episode in mind that they think this season is the episode that is not only a good episode, but contextualizes the stuff before it better than these first two episodes. 
So I would guess that there is at some point a push so that if this is a difficult show, watch all of it. So yeah. there might be more billboards towards the end of the season. I'm a, because I'm, a, I'm obviously a few episodes in. I'm not sure what that episode is necessarily, but I'm mm. curious to see. Well, then they've made a mistake because yeah. you're right. If people aren't on board with the pilot and the other episodes, but how aren't could better, you not be on board with up. the pilot? The pilot is astounding. The pilot is like huge blockbuster action with the just pilot like big ideas. A lot. The pilot is a lot. You watch TV in a different way than I watch. Like, I spent the eyes? whole like I got 45 minutes in and I was like, okay, I think I'm can get the concept of this show. Game of Thrones doesn't have a battle episode until like episode seven or something. And this one's they're like, all right. And then I mean, the tower comes the down. The pilot yeah. gives us Alexander Sadiq doing uh, like court. <laughs> I mean, the, the, space court. The, television, the disadvantage that television has is that it doesn't have your full attention, at least if you're me. Um, you know, I mean, that is definitely this show's and, great risk. Yeah. And so like I, I, I'm not saying that I have a brain capable of understanding what the show is doing, even if I saw it uh, in IMAX with my phone turned off. But Certainly watching it at home um, with one ear listening towards see if my, my kid was waking up and, um, you know, eating my dinner with uh, my right hand and looking at my phone and my left. I mean, it was just not not uh, the most um, conducive environment to rolling along with the show. Um, and so, like, it's tough because obviously this is the only format where a story is the scale of the foundation can be told. But it does really require a lot of buy-in, and I think if you are able to emotionally invest people in it the way that I and others eventually became invested in Game of Thrones, they will summon the will to have that attention. Um, but, you know. Yeah, I don't think the show benefits from people reaching the point where there are no more episodes. Like, if you get locked into the narrative and you want to watch the next episode, I think that's really going to work in Foundation's uh, favor, because I don't think that feeling lasted for me. Like, I ended the first episode, I'm like, let's see where this goes. I ended the second episode, I'm like, that's really weird. Am I going to remember on Friday that I want to see where that goes? And that's really the, the problem with airing it week to week, I think. Oh, wow. No, it's, it's I, 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 would, I would vote for week to week, week, to week especially for something this dense. Oh, yeah. Like, I was exhausted by the time I got to the end of this episode. Whereas something like, I mean, like Midnight Masses, I, I'm such an evangelist for uh, the, week, the weekly releases. Uh, rather than binge watching and then something like midnight mass which is seven hours long comes along and i feel like the air would have gone out of the tire had i had a week between those episodes like it really was the perfect weekend binge and so all cart way of approaching this probably for the best i do think by default the, the default thinking should be weekly releases and then only binge in certain exceptional cases um something like this third season of sex education which i enjoyed uh but for the third time in a row with that show which is a show i quite like felt like it feels like a light snack and and sort of background viewing um when you are sort of binging it in over a couple of days whereas if you were able to carve out time for it in a week-by-week basis or were forced to um it would hit differently but you know different strokes yeah, at least Foundation has the time going week to week to build buzz. So just even just because it's not on all the billboards yet, doesn't I can mean only we're hope it will. I don't. I don't know. They're gonna. Actually, they're gonna. I'm not optimistic. An ad on the side of the moon by the time this season is over, just to match the scale of the show. Uh, I just want this to be. I mean, this really for me feels like after so many streaming services and networks have been trying to find whatever the next Game of Thrones is, if that's even possible. I, this is it for me. This is like characters I like and small human stories eventually that 
pass, you know, explode into giant galactic problems. I, I, I don't know. And to your point, Do David, you like- okay. it is truly geeky in a in a in a pure way. The whole brother dawn, brother day, brother dusk stuff. Every time it comes up, it's giggling with absolute delight. I, I love that. And that's not from the books. I don't believe that is an invention. Do you like the uh, expanse? I could not get into it. I have tried to watch season one. Is of that the, the one that Jared Harris times. is also on? Yes, Jared Harris <laughs> is also in the Expanse. I believe <laughs> Jared Harris gets around the outer ridge, the outer rim of our galaxy. He does, uh, but yeah, interesting. Uh, I, I, here's here's I guess what we'll do. Patches. If we get to the end of the season, if you get to the end of the season and you give me like four weeks lead up because you're way ahead of me, and you're like this, I think is worth it. I'll come back and meet you in the sphere of debate at the end of the season. Sure. Just so we I will definitely found- get to the end of the season. I'm almost done. We could, we could give Foundation a fair shake in hindsight. But, I'll uh, see you in like two months, I guess. Because I, I mostly agree that like this could be Game of Thrones-ish. And if I would have given a review of Game of Thrones after episode one, episode two, I'd have been like, that's a fucking dinner and now they're on the road for maybe forever. Like, fuck this show. So I, I can see how it just t- needs time to build. Yeah, I mean, I, what I'm not sure of to your point, David mentioned this, which was David Goyer has pointed to the stars and said, this is going to be 80 episodes, eight seasons. I'm just like, where, where is it going? Because we just move so quickly. And, and it does slow down in the middle just to like figure out what's going on. Terminus and other plans are kind of coming to the planet and maneuvering outside the Empire. I mean, I guess the big question is, hey, Harry Seldon said the Empire will fall, so the Empire has to fall at some point and if you, i haven't read many of the foundation books beyond that first novel that first collection but other people try and make foundations and there's all sorts of t- big time jumps and like maybe the entire cast will be gone someday and they'll completely reboot the show and that will work to their advantage i don't know what the future of foundation holds but i'm pretty excited by it foundation apple tv plus right now and on fridays check it out Ground control to Major Tom. That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. We're talking about no, uh, no. We're talking about <laughs> the many saints of Newark and also Venom Two. What a combo! In the meantime, <laughs> tell the people who you are. I'm Matt Patches, senior editor at Polygon. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches, producing another podcast called Galaxy Brains. Right now, we're going to do a crossover with the the Good Ones podcast on Vulture, just David Fox talking Seinfeld this week. Should be fun. Um, but if you need lots of other podcast content, screw every other podcast. Fighting in the Worm has hours and hours of, of delightful content, and you can listen to it on a browser at fightingintheworm.com. Easy way to peruse. There is even more Fighting in the Worm content than there is Foundation that David Goyer wants to make. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot. Um... We, we are the vastest uh, mythology in the galaxy over here. Um, I'm David Ehrlich. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, David Ehrlich. You can find me, and this is a frightening thought because it's a three-hour movie that I have yet to watch, um, but 24 hours now we'll supposedly have a review of on the internet. Uh, you can find my review of the new James Bond movie, No Time to Die, which is, I guess is not so new anymore, um, on IndieWire by the time you hear this, probably. 
Um, and yeah, and, uh, I'm just thinking of like the end of sunrise or sunshine. It's like they look up in the stars and you'll know that I've made it. Um, I may, I may be a shell of a man, but my copy will be on the internet. You can find all of us together talking about Midnight Mass on Netflix and Foundation on Apple TV Plus and other things in the future. Uh, in alternate timelines, in the space-time continuum, through black holes, wear the mesh, on Fighting in the War Room, <laughs> on iTunes, leave us a review. That's what I'm getting at. Leave us a review. I'm Dave Gonzalez. You can find me on Twitter at DA7E. And here, this is the only podcast I'm on for a little bit. Uh, wrapped up the storm. It was good. We wow. did it. We watched Lost. Congrats, you guys. Thank you. Uh, I'm Katie Rich. You can find me on Blank Check this week. Uh, you can find me on the Little Gold Men podcast, where we're going to talk about lots of stuff. Uh, you can find me at VanityFair.com for other stuff. I'm on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-A-C-H. And we're all on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R, where you can share your favorite nerd-ass shit, or you can answer this week's like wrong question, which was... What's a lead performance in a movie that's better than it has to be to serve the movie around it? I actually really want to hear people's answer to this question, so answer that instead. Uh, thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. And I think my spaceship knows which way to go. Tell my wife I love her very much. She knows. Ground control to Major Tom, your circuit's dead. There's something I'm done.